reserve. <laughs> Do what? Is that steel reserve? No, it's not steel reserve. I'm not like I'm not oh, a shiner. <laughs> oh, oh. holiday cheer. <laughs> I mean, see, like a silver can. All right. No, I have steel reserve since college. <clears throat> All right, let's go. All right, I'll do the intro. Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Milsurf World podcast, uh, the first podcast all about military surplus. I am Aaron, and today we're joined by Danny from his tub, uh, uh, Cody, and Sam from Austria. Cody's not from Austria. Hello there. Sam is. Hello there. I'm going to make sure everyone pronounces stuff correctly. Yes. Uh, Danny, do you want to explain why you're in a bathtub? Oh, uh, yeah, I'm not going to be on uh, the whole show today because we're moving into a house and working on stuff. So I just thought hey, I'd hop in the Danny tub. Danny bought a house. Woo, he's a homeowner. Yeah, I bought a house. You know what? He finally stopped eating avocado toast. And and this and this is the <laughs> result, guys. I gave up Starbucks and avocado toast and... Could afford a house then, where it all went. It only took three months. Yeah, yeah. Three months, no Starbucks, and then could afford a house. Crazy. Okay. So we usually start these episodes off uh, by going through and... Oh, wait, we have a new person. Sam is new to the podcast. So, Sam, uh, before we get into our recent acquisitions, Sam, why don't you give us a little background about how you got started into Military Surplus... And, and and we'll go from there. All right. So um, my first venture into into surplus rifles. So I'm I'm a big rifle guy. Uh, was my M96 Swedish long rifle, uh, which I still have. It's a 1905 Carl Gustav Stad uh, production. And I was at a range with with some uh, rental weapon because I was just trying out what I like and what I don't like. And some older guy had it with him. And I asked if I could shoot it because I, I've i always loved history and I just wanted to try. And I liked it so much that he just asked if I wanted to buy it. And I said, yeah, bought it for a good price, I think. Uh, I didn't know back then, but it turns out it was an okay price. And that's how it all started. And initially I, I moved into like the classic like World War II direction with the more common rifles, but uh, relatively soon noticed that World War One is just cooler. That's why it's called the Great War and not just the OK War. Um, and now we're here, and I'm collecting mainline infantry rifles of the World War One era. Nice, always, cool. always a subtle, subtle a good start. Uh, fun choice. Uh, yeah, yeah, Danny's Danny's uh Danny's gonna comment on that's a very strong start uh, to go to a mediocre finish. I think is where he's gonna go with this. <laughs> no, it's, I mean it's better than like a ninety-one thirty or you know SKS or whatever. It's kind of neat to hear like a foreign experience to like the typical kind of American first first gun. So no 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 complaints here, man. Oh, and I, I feel like we got to wait. You're allowed to have guns in in Europe. Yeah, so so uh, Sam is in Austria, not Germany. It's a separate country. Let's just that clar- is true. Let's clarify that for our American listeners. <laughs> Isn't that like East Switzerland? No, what? what? Or is it? Austria, that's like East Switzerland, right? Or is it like 
Uh, with Austria, the part of Hungary that broke off, Hungary did most of the work in the empire or whatever. What was that? Um, it's actually Eastern Liechtenstein. So uh, the uh, most powerful uh, nation on earth who went to war and came back with more people than they left with. Yeah, they came mm -hmm. back with oh. friends. I remember that. Yeah. 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 Just imagine having such a beastly military that people just join you rather than fight you. Well, Sam, do you have yeah. any recent acquisitions? Uh, I do. Well, not the acquisition is recent, but it arriving here uh, is recent because I imported it. Uh, as you all know, because I've been talking about it quite a lot on the Discord. By the way, join the Discord. It's amazing. <laughs> um, a original Bulgarian contract M95 long rifle, still with its matching bolt with the gas vent and everything, and a not a matching stock, actually, but a Bulgarian re replacement stock because it still has the stock cartouche with the uh, with the Bulgarian lion crest. So very happy about that. And also with the same delivery came an M90 carbine because I didn't have one yet and I kind of find them neat. Aside from whatever idiot decided to put a sling swivel right on the neck where you grasp the rifle. Yeah. Yeah. You're saying that Can't excuse a, that. Is there an Austrian term for Bubba? Not really. No, not really. I think. Is there like a term for like hick or like country folk? Uh, yeah, it's. I think it's a it's a general German term like Hinterwäldler, which means like behind the forester. <laughs> so like someone who lives, yeah, someone who lives like way not even in off, the forest, in a way from civilization. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I feel like I feel like I should give a shout out real quick that uh, Samuel is. He's been translating my letters for the uh, letters. Better than the front videos. So appreciate you doing that, man. Really cool. Yeah, the video seems like I got some pretty pretty positive response. So, oh, that's, that's nice to hear. Well, very glad to do that. It's it's super interesting. I really enjoyed doing that, especially uh, going through various letters that are not looking like letters, like you know, A B C letters, not letter letter. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, we understand, and I and I know from, I know from listening to some other people talk that it's hard to translate some of that stuff because isn't it high German? No, it it actually looked to be a, a dialect. I don't know which one, but I I assume it's somewhere north of Bavaria. Like, mm. I think it's it's kind of Saxony ish, but I don't know. I'm really bad with like proper German. Uh, dialects. Um, so yeah, and also back then people really didn't care about, you know, writing words the way with the way they they were supposed to, to be written. I mean they did, but many words were just written differently. So Germans saw a lot of uh, a lot of changes in the way stuff is written. So like the the S set, as you probably know, the little B looking letter. Um, it's nowadays oftentimes written as a double S. So things like that um, just change the shape of a word where when it's written in cursive, sometimes it gets more difficult to recognize the word as what it is. Yeah. yeah but I'm trying. 100 years ago. Yeah. yeah. 
So that's neat. I really, I really like what you you, you brought out the stories uh, for us. And I think it's, I think it's really neat, man. I'm looking forward to doing more of them. Sorry, Danny, you cut out. I'm assuming you said something about if you haven't seen the videos, check them out on the main yeah. channel. Yep, yep. If you haven't seen them, uh, yeah, there's more to come. So, okay, check them out right Cody, do you have a recent acquisition? Um, I got two, I would say. First off, is I picked up a Gavir 88 from a recently defunct ammo company. Um, <laughs> took a little to get it running but uh it's shooting but uh and then i picked up a batch of um 10 of the 6.5 carcano veteries from everyone's favorite milsurp website so Royal Tiger. so if everybody heard that correctly he picked up 10 rifles yeah couldn't help it they did a nice christmas sale on rti just gets to you sometimes so how many will that when that is is that already delivered Oh yeah, I got them a few weeks ago. So how how many is that your total now? Over thirty. I I, I kind of lost track. We were we were a tight race, you and I. But I think uh, the fact that you have a lot more expendable income than I do <laughs> has blown that race out of proportion. <laughs> yeah, I mean when they do when they do hundred fifty dollar rifles, it's it's hard to uh, hard to pass that up. You know, because. I mean, Ten years from now, you're going to be kicking yourself for not not buying more of them. It's hard Any, to argue. Less than like three hundred bucks, it's just like you might as well get it. Especially two hundred bucks and two hundred, just just yeah. get it. They're sold out. Now, did you go pick them up, or did you have them delivered? So uh, when I ordered them, there was some sort of error on their website that caused the shipping to not calculate properly and instead of instead of it calculating the shipping for 10 rifles because the veterans are large yeah and heavy, uh, and they're pretty expensive to ship it gave me like a 25 dollar flat rate shipping on all 10 of them and uh so i called him up and asked him about it and i said well you know i don't want to instead of you know having to redo it and pay for all the shipping can i just come pick them up because it's only a couple hour drive for me and they said sure so I just went and picked them up. Um, so I was able to get them for basically the 150 flat uh, each, which was awesome. So, which we should mention that RTI does not normally operate this way. Uh, no, yeah, they're they're not open to the public. But in I, I think once you once you probably reach um, you know RTI VIP status of buying you know 20 something rifles from them, they'll they'll. <laughs> They'll work with you. Yeah, awesome. when you're like, I just bought ten rifles in a batch. Can I come pick them up? They're like, okay. Especially yeah. if you've got the, the the certificates of authenticity. So I thought like, about okay. that. I I, I thought about getting that. I should have. Honestly, you, you're saving them money and time because that means that they can box out somebody else's order instead of having yeah, to right. box out ten more orders for you. Yeah. yeah. So. Danny, you got anything new? Fucking house. I haven't, no, not really. Been. Oh, uh, I bought a, I have some picked it up. I bought it like three weeks ago. I got a Arasaka, one of the, supposedly one of the 30 out six conversions. The, it's the always US the Arasaka. Uh, yeah, lately. But it's, it's the 30, it's the ones that the US converted to 30 out six for Korea. Um, oh. It could be a fake. I'm going to have to see it. The photos are pretty bad, but I, I thought the price was good. I, so I, I just I gave them a lot. If I still haven't picked it up, I have to get the time to go to go get it. But 
No, that's that's it. That in the house. Yeah. So I'm not going to be probably buying a whole whole ton, whole ton here soon. So what's your address? Dude, this bathtub is not very. They're not actually comfortable without water in them. Hey, so Danny, what's your address now? <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right. In all seriousness, uh, I haven't bought anything new. I've uh, been. Uh, we've had some uh, financial issues with one of our dogs, and some health issues that have uh, prevented me from purchasing anything here. So, um, otherwise, I might have bought maybe bought one or two M95s, not a close to a dozen <laughs> but um so that's not really helped me in in terms of my buying but um we did see um uh, what is the name of the show danny missouri valley uh there what uh i forgot i forgot okay yeah. so the the gun show that we went to that we had a discussion with everybody on um they did publish a little uh uh magazine booklet um, thing, uh, and, and Danny's table was featured, uh, and I do know that for this next year, this current year, 2024, uh, I will be trying to attend and do a M95, uh, table, and if I'm going to, I'm, I'm hoping to do at least two, two tables side by side and show, um, all of the variations of M95s that I have, from all the different countries, um, so uh, should be a, a. I hope I have it already. Have it planned out and everything. So I hope it's a nice uh, table. And Danny, I think you said somebody else was maybe doing another table. Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the other Discord members that's local here to KC is wanting to do a display of Japanese stuff. So uh, the display tables are a lot cheaper than like the sale tables. So I think we should all like get together. And get a bunch maybe that way we can all like be guaranteed to be in a row or something yeah and then like you kind of do like you can do like japan and you know you can do it and each table can have a theme but maybe we can all kind of blend in together like have the same color tablecloths or something but be fun yeah and samuel i think you're gonna fly in for that one right next next year or this year now i mean now that you've sworn off the avocado toast you know i'm i'm looking forward to you buying the ticket <laughs> I, I I sent you the ticket. It's only it was actually cheaper than I thought it would be. The, the, from because we got an international airport here, man, and, and big city came the city. So uh, I don't think they fly direct from Austria. <laughs> well, actually, Austria has a rather large airport. It's, mm -hmm. it's not, and even if not, usually it's like um, I am going to be in Korea next week, or rather next. Saturday to like Wednesday the week after, yeah, something like that. And usually, um, the long international flights are like Vienna, Frankfurt, or Vienna, London, and then to wherever. So it's it's like a two-hour detour to one of those, and then you just fly wherever. It's more like time constraints. Like I'd really like to join you on on one of the shows. Especially to just buy some antiques. Yeah. Well, just try to make it if you can. It'd be it'd be cool. Cool to, to get you here all the way from Australia, like from those kangaroos. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll try not to get bitten by some poisonous snakes by the 
liquid or whatever animal is platypus is also poisonous. It's it's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, I'm probably gonna I'm probably gonna hop off here. I am getting more and more uncomfortable in this bathtub. So have a good podcast. I'm looking forward to listening to it. Uh, I'll see you guys later. All right. All right. See ya. See ya. Yeah, Love you. Love you guys too. Uh, I looked it up. Uh, it is uh, including layovers, fourteen hour, fourteen and a half hours. Really, that's quite long. Uh, well, it's it's got a lot of layovers in most of these. Um, yeah. Yeah, because I, I think the flight to Korea is like sixteen hours, so fourteen hours to the U.S. seems quite excessive. But who knows? I don't know. I'm I'm pretty well, bad at judging you're, distances. You're also going sphere. against the time. So you're going the oh, opposite. Yeah, that is true. So you are losing time going that way. But um, uh, yeah, uh, Brussels Airlines flies from Vienna to uh, uh, you fly into to Brussels, and then you go to Washington D.C., and then you go to Kansas City. I mean, that doesn't sound too bad. And then there's Austrian and United, and Austrian takes you to uh, O'Hare in Chicago, and then to Kansas City. So that's not terrible. And that's $786 one way. That really isn't so bad. I should think about this in I mean, it's a long way to go, though. I mean, that's a long flight. Yeah, but I mean, I can actually boomers at a gun show it would when be they funny. mispronounce stuff and just be annoying. So... So the big reason we have Sam on today uh, is because uh, we're continuing our uh, series here where we're doing an in-depth study into the infantry rifles of a particular country all the way from their beginning of black powder uh, cartridge rifles all the way up to uh, the end of World War II. Uh, however, in this case, um, this country doesn't exist past World War One. <laughs> Oops. So we're just going to go there. Um, um, but uh, will you? can you say the full name of the country, uh, Sam? Is it too much? Uh, I mean, the like the official name it's, or it's stupid long, everybody. It's like with all the the names of all the stuff because it's royalty involved. Oh, I mean, I'm not gonna say the full <laughs> title of of the Austrian Emperor because, like, we only have so many hours and that wouldn't fit. Um, but the country we are talking about is the KUK Monarchie, or as österreichisch ungarische Monarchie, known. So we're going to talk about the Austro-Hungarian dual monarchy today. Right. So. Can you give a little bit of a, a background into how this happened? Because I don't think it really, it's really not really talked about in, especially in United States history. I don't really know about the formation of the empire as far as the dual monarchy goes. Just real quick. Yeah, so um, basically the dual monarchy, um, people think it, it's always been this way, but up until 1867, the entire country was the Austrian Empire uh, because the Hungarians didn't have a say yet or not as much of a say and when Prussia beat Austria in the war of 1866 so that was the seven weeks war if I recall correctly 
um, yeah, Austria was basically kicked out of the, the German sphere of influence. Um, so this war was about influence within the German states. Uh, Germany at that point was not a unified country, as probably most of you know. And in 1867, the so-called Ausgleich, um, which was basically balancing, I translate it like that, happened with the Hungarians, basically creating a split um, or a country with two governments. So there was an Austrian half of the empire and, an Hung and a Hungarian half of the empire, um, both with their own governments, unified by the monarchy. So the Austrian emperor was also king of Hungary. I but think that covers most of it. Is this a situation of separate but equal? Uh, basically, yeah. So it wasn't, as far as I'm aware, it wasn't practiced 100%, but by law, Austrian and Hungarian was treated equally. So and the Hungarians made sure to, to use that in, in several quarrels. So um, this wasn't a harmonious relationship at all. And it was basically happening because, um, or one of the reasons was a fear of Hungarian separatism. So uh, the idea was to grant them equal rights to basically pacify the country, which led to more problems because other minorities then wanted equal rights to the Hungarians, and we all know how that ended in the end. So, um, so is this yeah. like an animal farm situation where all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others? Basically. Um, Austro-Hungarian ethnic policies are, are wild. Like in... In Istria, you have uh, a Croatian majority, and you also have a Italian and a Romanian minority, but the Romanian minority didn't have the same rights as the Italian minority. Um, however, the Croatian majority didn't want him to get more rights, but the Italian minority supported the Romanian minority in their fight for more rights, if I recall correctly. So... This was a whole mess, and it's really not surprising that this whole endeavor failed without a real will to reform the entire country. Uh, interesting. Very interesting. I'm going to keep having to kick people out of here. We're not able to use our normal podcast channel, uh, so people keep joining. I'm going to keep kicking them out. Can you uh, not lock the channel? for? Uh, I'm trying to figure that out while you were talking, but I'm still not versed on Discord. Yeah, well. But uh, so, what would be the first? Um, what would be the first um, rifle we want to talk about today? Then, so the country itself doesn't form until 1867. Technically, it separates. Well, Hungary separates tech kind of and becomes an independent, semi-independent, but still under the same thing. Well, it's very complicated. Um, uh, so. There was obviously a, a unified army, so do they become separate yes. armies at that point? Well, no, but... So, um, the Austrian half of the empire and the Hungarian half of the empire both had their sort of national guard system, more or less. So the, the Austrians used the Landwehr, and the Hungarian half had the Honved, which was... More, more or less akin to to a national guard, so it was supposed to be like the, um, yeah. So in, in case of war, the uh, 
the people that could be quickly mobilized into active service. And then you also had Unified Army, which was the actual armed forces of of the Empire, which was chronically underfunded, by the way. So um, don't be surprised when you hear stuff like um, them going into war with like 300 shells per artillery piece. Um, not the best idea, but it kind of worked out for years, kind of. And yeah, so... And the the very first rifle, I'd say, of the Austro-Hungarian Empire would be either the Wenzel or Wanzel rifle, as it's known in the US, or the Vandal, or Vandal Holup, actually. Um, so we can start with either of those. I think the Wenzel is rather quickly... Um, we can do those rather quickly. Right, so um, those rifles, and I'll pull one over here so we can show those. Um, those are similar to what we talked about with the uh, Germans and their conversions of um, single-shot uh, muzzle-loading rifles into a breech-loader of some sort, right? Yes, exactly. So after the after the defeat in, against the Prussians who used the Dreiser needle rifle, um, the Austro-Hungarian... Oh, the new Austro-Hungarian state basically decided that they need a breech loader ASAP, and like many countries, they went for a conversion system initially, uh, because A, it's cheaper, and B, it's quickly or it's quicker than to design, trial, and adopt a new rifle entirely. So it looks like these were 14 millimeter conversions. Yes, and rim fire. Have you ever shot one? I have not. I know people that that have one. Or several, actually. Uh, but I've not personally shot one. I'd like to. I should get one. They're pretty neat looking. Looks like there was a yeah. somewhat of a Jaeger as well. Yeah, so uh, the Jägerstutzen. Um, okay. So maybe as an explanation, because the the word Stutzen is going to, it's going to appear quite a lot in, in this podcast, I assume. Um, a Stutzen basically means a short one or shorty in... I think it's specifically Austrian German. I'm not sure if the term exists in Germany proper. Um, let's call it that for now. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's basically just a word for a, a short thing. Hmm. And yeah, a Jägerstutzen is basically just a shortened pattern for light infantry. So Jäger would be a light infantry unit. All right. So um, like a scout unit or something? Yeah, basically, like um, scouts and and just infantry intended to more or less harass the enemy uh, in an initial skirmish. So we have to remember that at this point we're still talking line formation battles. So we are not talking trench warfare or people actively seeking seeking cover um, in smaller units that operate semi-independently. Um, no, we're we're talking like people walking in a line and then aiming the rifles together in in volleys and firing at the enemy. So, so I I was messing with Discord while you were talking about this, but did the Austro-Hungarians have a professional army or was it a volunteer thing? Uh it was a professional army. Um. So yeah, the the Gemeinsame Army or um, Unified Army as. Uh, as you would know, it is 
the basically the the federal army of the entire of the entire nation so it uh it's made up of equally austrians hungarians uh south slavs ukrainians and you have it the official languages were austrian and hungarian so if i recall correctly all officers were supposed to speak both languages and amongst soldiers they were le- they were supposed to learn these commands in austrian and hungarian um however due to <laughs> yeah and due to this language mess um there's also something called soldatenslavish which was a, a wild mix of various slavic languages uh together with with german and hungarian uh that allowed for communication between different peoples uh on the battlefield so really it is kind of amazing that this entire organization worked at all yeah it sounds um it's always Basically, I don't know if Cody had the same experience as I did, but basically all that I know about the Austro-Hungarian Empire was that it was just a, a nightmare of of a web of bureaucracy and mess. Like, if you wanted something done, it was better just to do it yourself than to depend on anything in the government ever getting close to doing it. Yeah. <clears throat> Is that somewhat of a th- an accurate thing? Like, it just started to be, like, as you were saying, it seemed like what you were saying is that this whole compromise with Hungary... And then everybody was like, well, we want that too. So it kind of seems like it just all started to fall apart. Yeah, basically. So um, especially with the unified army, about half of the soldiers were actually of Slavic origin. So these are Czechs, Slovaks, Croatians, um, Bosniaks, Slovenes, you name it. And when half your army is made up of various peoples that are not represented by their own government within the empire, obviously leads to um to fractures i'd say so how many different countries uh, became came out of the 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 dissolution of the austro-hungarian empire entirely newly formed countries well, i think had, it's you had austria you had hungary the t- yeah you had austria hungary czechoslovakia um parts of it made up the new polish state um uh, big parts were given to Romania. Other parts also went to uh, the new SHS kingdom, so the the kingdom of Slovenes, Croats, and Serbs. That's uh, later known as Yugoslavia. So that would eventually become Yugoslavia. Yeah. Exactly, and um, if, I'm not sure, but I think Trieste, like the the, the major harbor city of the empire, was initially. Um, under international observation before being integrated into Italy, or was it Yugoslavia? I don't, I don't recall. Well, I don't think people realize just how big it is as terms of a country because it's it. It was the it, second largest nation in Europe after the Russian Empire. I was about to say it. I mean, we're talking it. It was above, right next to Switzerland, above Italy, and bordering Russia. Exactly. So we're we're talking a very big part of Europe was this mismatch of a country. Actually, I, I've got a good uh, a good map here I can bring up that's actually very a very handy coloration. Uh, and this is a part of um, why it's so hard to understand or why anything would have been hard to get done. 
Um, so as you can see, this is, so you have ethnic Germans here, Hungarians, Czechs, Slovaks, Poles, Ukrainians, Slovenes, is that how you say that? Slovenes. Slovenes, Croats, Serbs, Romanians, and Italians. So Yeah, and that's just the major groups. Like there were small ethnicities still. Yeah, I mean, you had Romanians, obviously near Romania. Oh, this is where Transylvania, so when you think of like vampires, everybody, it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. That uh, is true. Um, yeah, and you also have to think that um, over the centuries, so uh, the Austrian Empire and later Austria-Hungary is a very old country. Um, and over time, there were communities of other ethnicities that afterwards were in entirely different countries, which, again, during World War II and, and before led to various other conflicts. Yeah. So especially Hungary, until this day, there are people that, that claim Greater Hungary because they are still um, ethnically and linguistically Hungarian communities within Romania, for example. Yeah, you can see here, this is this is hard into, I'm assuming, what is now Romania. Yeah. So, like, this is, there's, like, this is very heavily showing uh, Hungarian here, which is what I'm assuming you're talking about. Yeah, like the like the little appendix from Very, Hungary proper yeah, like, so, into Romania. So essentially, all these disruptions and wars and moving around and everything like this is not like a homogenous country. Not at all. Yeah, so we can understand the the logistical nightmare and just it looks like even just speaking to somebody from one part of the country to another would be a very problematic situation. Oh yeah, I mean, if I take a train trip by an hour, I am in Vienna's sister city, uh, Bratislava, then then known as Pressburg, um, which is now the capital of uh, of Slovakia. And as soon as you cross the border, the entire language changes. But it's it's like thirty miles. It's really not not far. But the entire language and to some extent the culture changes. Uh, it's very interesting when you travel the former imperial lands that the architecture and everything is rather similar, but always with local touches. Mm. So when you visit Vienna and Budapest, you can tell, or Budapest actually, um, you can tell that these were the major, or the two big imperial cities together with Prague, and they look rather similar. Um, but you can also see it in in more remote in more remote cities that they have this they have this imperial look to them, which still stems from that day and age, but it's always with local flair. And this is also a part that uh, 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 is funny to a lot of people. People don't realize that uh, Austria-Hungary did have a navy. Um, yeah. Uh, because of this part, like you can clearly see, they had access to the. To the uh, Mediterranean, obviously it wasn't very large, um, but um, I mean it was large enough to be considered a threat by the Entente. So the the French and later the Italian navy didn't make an appearance in the Northern Sea against um, the German Hochseeflotte, specifically because they were tasked with containing the Austro-Hungarian fleet, 
So the in- entire French Navy, which was, I, th- I think, the third largest navy in the world at that point, was tasked with just keeping them restrained to their ports, and still they managed to uh, to bombard Italian coastal lands and also, I think, uh, fight some minor engagements. But they never had like um, a huge, yeah, gets, a huge battle like gets, the one at Jutland. I must say, it gets overshadowed by the German and the the, the British uh, engagements, naval engagements, for sure, in terms of uh, what people talk about. Yeah, especially because one of the one of the big reasons in quotation marks for the war was the the British and German naval arms race that came to a boil over point, basically. Yeah, everybody was waiting for the go trigger, and it just happened to be uh, an assassination of of a random dude. <laughs> Basically, yeah. All right. So before we get off on more tangents, uh, so we have the muzzle uh, muzzle loader conversions into breech loaders, and then yes. so we have the the formation of the dual monarchy in eighteen sixty seven, and and then at this point we're going to be like we're going to adopt a breech loading rifle that's from the start, right? Exactly. So, um, so what do we get? We get the Vandal Holup rifle, um, or just Vandal or Verndl for the US collectors or international collectors, uh, which was the famous tabernacle rifle. So called after its, its breech system, where you basically have a cylinder that, that rotates uh, horizontally. So you you open it, the the spent cartridge so good, just uh, gets good picture of it right here. Yeah, I actually don't see a screen. So if you if you are sharing, I don't see it. Oh, it's uh it's on my screen. So uh, ah, okay, you just do your conversation, and uh, and I've got the picture here. Okay, um, so yeah, you would just um, there's a little handle, and you would just flick it over with your thumb. The Extracted and pushes the old cartridge out. It's it's really funny because it actually gets like pooped out. It's super fun to play with. So if you ever get the chance, do it. Um, and then you load the next cartridge in, close it up, and you're ready to go. So it looks quite rustic with the with the exposed hammer. It yeah. gives it a very uh, muzzle loader esque look, uh, but it is a breech loader. And the firing pin is actually not on the hammer. The hammer actually strikes the firing pin, which is inside of of the breech. So I don't know if you have a picture there where you can see it. I have a picture of the breech with the hammer. Okay, so but uh, the the firing pin is in a little inlet in the breech, and the hammer would strike that, which would then uh, strike the cartridge. So that was a center fire cartridge. It definitely uh, initially. Is, it definitely looks like something that is was made so that it was easier to train troops that were used to uh, a muzzle loading firearm. Yeah, definitely. I don't know if that was the reason for its adoption. Um, I think one of the big reasons was that it it was very robust. So uh, apparently during the trials or when he presented it, Vandal just took his rifle and threw it out of the window multiple times um like a out of a three-story building i think and you know it crashed to the ground they picked it up fired it carried it back up again threw it out the window fired it again 
and apparently it was very impressive. However, um, the system is very... It has quite a few drawbacks, especially because of the, the hammer system. Um, because you have to actually pull the hammer back before each shot. So compared to something like the the first Mauser rifle, the 1871, you can't just throw it in, bolt forward, and you're good to go. You have to also have to thumb the cartridge in, so the, the tabernacle won't close if, if the cartridge isn't fully inserted into the chamber, um, which is something people often overlook, I think. Um, but it's very similar to the to the rolling block, where you have to actually thumb it in. And yeah, the the exposed hammer just... I think it's just a, a weakness of the entire system. Um, I do have a Vandal, actually. Uh, I have the 1873-77 patent for... Uh, so there was a cartridge update. Initially, it was like 11... 15 by 42 millimeter rimmed, I think, which was later updated to 11.15 by 58 millimeter. And yeah. um, so you had the you had the the 67, and then you had the 73, and then the 77. Uh, yeah, I think I'm not sure the 73 into 77 differ too much. I, I can't recall. I'd have to read up on it to be honest. Um, but basically big changes from the initial patent were that you had a finger spur um, right behind the trigger guard. Um, they also slimmed down the stock because on the original 1867 models, the the stock is incredibly fat. It's, it's very uncomfortable to hold. Um, and they, I think they also lightened the trigger, which is amazing to me because it is awfully heavy. If you if you get the chance, try and and measure the the trigger pull on on a vandal rifle. I should do that for mine. It it feels like it's a ton. The um, the seventy seven is where we end up with the eleven millimeter uh, uh, Verndal uh, caliber, which was eventually adopted as far as the eighteen eighty six. Correct. Yeah, it's it's the updated one, um, the by fifty eight millimeter rimmed. So initially, um, it was a shared cartridge between the uh, the rifle and the then new service revolver, uh, which I can't remember the model of. But the idea was that uh, there's one cartridge for both, uh, similar to or it's a similar idea to the um, the revolver caliber uh, lever action rifles in the U.S. So where you just have your handgun and your rifle and you use the same caliber interchangeably. Okay. Um, which was pretty forward-thinking, I think. Well, I mean, you're trying to simplify things as much as possible with your very complicated system of government. Yeah. Like, uh, the the less logistics you have to think about, the better. But you did, you do see a weird, the weird thing is, is that you do have, you have, um, is it two different cartridges or four different cartridges? It is two different cartridges, I believe. So you have they... the, the carbine and well the the, uh, the carbine right for the sixty seven, and the infantry yeah. rifle, and they have the same cartridge, right? Yes. And then you also have a revolver that also used the first cartridge, if I recall correctly. Eleven by four. So they used the, 
Exactly. Uh, yeah. When the cartridge was updated, they kept the 11 by 42 millimeter rimmed. Um, because I, I don't want to know how 11 by 58 feels like out of a car, um, out of a revolver, but I can't imagine it's uh, conducive to proper aiming, especially because it's a very long cartridge at that point. So you'd have to rework the entire system. That is a, an interesting idea uh, to do an 11 by 48 pistol. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's just forty-two in quotation marks, oh, but 42, um, 42, yeah. I'm I, I'm not sure if they use different charges. I believe so, but I mean, you would think they would have to. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if they either used a very a very weak um, charge for for the carbines uh, that was also used in the revolvers. Or if the revolvers had their own charge entirely, I, I can't recall. I, I knew it at one point, but I don't recall. I'm sorry. It's okay, it's okay. Uh, Sam's area of expertise is, is a little bit sooner than this, uh, but um, uh, this is this is our lead-up to that. So uh, we start with the muzzleloader conversions, then we move into the Vernal. So this is still not a repeater, obviously, so we're still doing single shot here. Um, and, and how long do they keep these rifles? Um, so we start 1867, and what, the next one is the 8, well, besides the updates, is the 1886? Um, technically the 1885, uh, which was very quickly updated to the 1886, so not a ton of those were, were uh, produced. But if I recall correctly, they were officially adopted. Um, but yeah, we're moving into the the famous Mannlicher straight pull rifles. So um, Mannlicher in 1884 already patented a straight pull design with rear locking lugs. So it's very similar to uh, the M95 and the M90 carbine action uh, in that it's a rotating bolt head with a bolt sleeve uh, with helical grooves that you know they they transfer the linear force into a rotary one and he had that patented however there were concerns that it would be too difficult and too expensive to produce in masses so he was asked to simplify the action basically and what he came up with was a wedge locking system which had a a pivoting block so it pivoted up and downwards um which led to the 1885 and 1886 rifles. I actually have a nice drawing of the um, uh, 1886 um, uh, showing the action as a cutaway. Yeah, it's, I think it's a really cool system and incredibly unique. Now, um, obviously, this is simpler to manufacture, um, but... Uh, yeah, the, but the concern, it's also weaker. The concern would be that yeah, it is weaker. So this is... Um, um, if you look on my screen, if the as your the listeners or viewers, I suppose uh, this is this is your block here in this section. And for you guys listening, uh, Sam and Cody, I'm looking at the Wikipedia entry for the M1886, and you can see the cutaway. Um, but um, this section right here is what's stopping the bolt from flying backwards. This section labeled D, and that's it. <laughs> it's not much. <laughs> yeah, it's. It's a very brave system. Um, however, I think 
uh, one shouldn't forget that at this point, smokeless powder wasn't a thing. I mean, technically it was. I think um, it was patented in 1884. Let me let me check because I'm for my side project. I literally wrote this down today. Um, not today, yesterday. Well, before we do that, yeah, I, I wanna I wanna I wanna have like a slight hot take here, and I've I've had this I've I've discussed this before on the on the Discord, and um, and it's just because of timing. I think I think this is what it's going to end up being, but I think this is probably the pinnacle of the 11 millimeter black powder repeating rifles. Um, this is like the best of the repeating technology available at the time and the magazine technology available at the time. Um, you weren't going, I mean, maybe the Karpatrick would, would rival in terms of speed of, of firing, but definitely I not. would throw in the Remington Lee. Oh yes. Rifles. Yes, that's true. Oh, yeah. um, because they also had a box magazine, but I think it's between those two designs where you could argue they are top of the line right before the introduction of smokeless powder. Yeah, I think, yeah, this is like, this is, this, I mean, it's just really, it's really shitty timing for the Austro-Hungarians that they've invested all this, they've, they've built this, and this is like, this is peak design. This, if it wasn't for the invention of smokeless, could have potentially sparked an arms race by itself because you have a repeatable firing magazine uh, system, uh, which is extremely fast. I mean, most countries are still using single-shot rifles at this point. So it, this is uh, this is a huge leap in terms of 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 your of capability of fire for a single unit or a single man. So, um, but smokeless comes along and it just is like oh. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, it's the French again. Yeah. Yeah. So I can't imagine. I hundred percent agree with you, though. I can't imagine the 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 overall feeling of just no, no, no. We fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I have to say, um, this entire process. So basically, the Austro-Hungarian Empire adopted. Five, four or five different models of rifle within the span of less than 10 years. And in the end, it worked out for them um, because it meant by the start of the Great War, they had more than a million rifles in reserve that could be converted or were converted to smokeless powder already. Yeah. So, and they were all repeating rifles. They had a quick loading system, which was probably the the more revolutionary part of them, aside from the straight pull, because um, like having a package of rifle um, of cartridges. Yeah, I'm showing the in, the, in the, one the, go the clip here right now. Yeah, and you just throw them in. It makes click, and then you're good to go. You you load the or you chamber the first round, and then you have four more to go. While at that time, the other nations like the German Empire and the French relied on the Kopacek magazine tube, which is a very well-working system, don't get me wrong, but you have to load each cartridge, cartridge singularly, um, meaning that by the time your magazine is empty, there's a lot of downtime until you can fire again, unless you want to go for single shots. While with the Mandlicher straight pull rifles, um, 
last cartridges fired, you open the action, throw a new clip in, and you're good to go again for five rounds. So that was probably the the more revolutionary part, aside from the straight pull, and also a reason why many nations actually adopted that system, at least initially, like the Germans, uh, with the Gewehr 88. Well, you see the Italians adopt it, you see the, the French even adopt it with the Bertier. Yeah. Uh, you see... Yeah, it, it, it really, it's a lot more nations than you'd think use that system compared to the stripper clip, which could be argued is superior because it doesn't need any kind of ejection system. You just take it out. However, you have, as you mentioned, Italy, Germany initially, uh, the French, the Dutch, Romanians. They're all European uh, the nations and were... Let's not forget the Bulgarians. The, the Bulgarians, exactly. Um, they they stayed faithful to the straight pulls as well. Um, yes. But they all adopted at least the Mannlicher magazine system. Uh, the the Swiss is not a Mannlicher magazine, right? No, that's no, okay. uh, that's a native design. That's a straight, that's a straight pull Vetterling. <clears throat> yeah. 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 Okay. It's it the the Swiss M ninety three. The bolt is like I, exactly identical. They just basically added a camming action to a Vetterling bolt. It's so a, the the Schmidt Rubens are basically straight pull Vetterlings. I was referring to the the Mannlicher M ninety three. Oh, okay. So uh, that M93 is essentially a very a, a smaller version of an M95. It is mm-hmm. it is very action wise, yes. Magazine wise, I'd say no, no yeah. because it's a box magazine that uses the Swiss charges that everyone knows and loves. Action wise, it, it's it it looks very very similar because Danny has an M93, and it it's. It's it's just a shrunk down uh, M95 in terms of to a slightly smaller cartridge and, and in a carbine carbine form I think is what they call it. Yeah, it it really is because the M95 action is essentially an M90 action. Oh, we're getting ahead so, of ourselves. Um, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> so so we have the 86. We have what is could be argued potentially one of the best. Uh, black powder repeating rifles especially of the time period potentially of of the history and then it immediately gets all of the thunder shot out of it because the french introduced smokeless powder god damn them so so i don't know the history about this but i'm assuming there's a panic in the austro-hungarian system and it's oh fuck we've and i'm and i'm just coming from a manufacturing background this takes time to build and tool up and produce and, and trial and get everything ready to go. And that's in modern day. It, it takes years to get this stuff together in modern day. I can imagine how much time and effort and manpower was involved in getting this ready to go. And then the year of the adoption, the official adoption, it's not, it's no longer valid. Yeah, especially because at that point, smoked as powder was a French state secret. And you couldn't get it. Only the French knew how to do it. And everyone else first had to do research into how to actually make a smokeless propellant, which is just uh, a stabilized nitrocellulose powder. And so initially, there was a gap between the the new French smokeless cartridge, the 8x50 rimmed label uh, cartridge, and 
basically everyone else's ammunition. So many nations first went for a compre um a compressed black powder charge, which is basically just yeah, just that compressed black powder. Uh to close the gap speed wise and they managed to you know increase the speed by like one three hundred feet per second uh more or less. Um however they couldn't reach smokeless. Uh so during that frenzy the Austro Hungarians updated um the M eighteen eighty six pattern to the M eighteen eighty eight pattern. Uh, which was built for a small bore compressed black powder cartridge on uh, the M90 cartridge, if I recall correctly, which was no, the M88 cartridge, pardon me. Um, so it was more or less the same rifle, just with a smaller bore and a smaller magazine, uh, because it didn't have to accommodate for a huge 11 millimeter uh, cartridge anymore. Um, so yeah, at, at first glance they look almost the same. And they, it's they just also a, get confused quite a bit. I will tell you in collector circles. That is true. Uh, the big key yeah. thing, like like uh, Sam said, is to look at the barrel. If it's a huge fucking hole, it's eleven millimeter. Um, if you could stick your thumb in it, it's eleven millimeter. Uh, and the other yeah. thing too is uh, the magazine. The, the magazine will jut below the trigger guard if it is 11 millimeter. Uh, if it's not, it will be level with the trigger guard. Yes, exactly. Um, so yeah, that that was their stopgap um, until they had their own smokeless powder, which came in 1890. Um, when they, I think it was 1890. I'll, is this I'll still look it up. the wedge locking system? This is still the wedge locking system. The uh, the action itself wasn't changed, so they were still happy with the wedge locker for now. However, that would change um, in 1890. Actually, uh, when they had their own smokeless powder, they knew they needed a stronger action eventually, uh, because the expectation back then was that cartridges would get stronger, like basically. You know how it is with technology. You have it, and then there's this huge projection where you expect it to become better relatively soon and, and over time get better and better or stronger in this case. Uh, so they knew they had to go for a stronger action. And they had they used the cavalry more or less as a test run for that because... Uh, the cavalry didn't have a carbine at that point. They used the Vandal carbine. Um, specifically because the wedge locking action is gigantic by comparison. So it, it needs a lot of metal, it needs a lot of space uh, within or on the rifle itself. So it didn't lend itself to a carbine pattern. So the cavalry in 1890 got the M90 carbine. Having said that, there was an M90 infantry rifle, which was <clears throat> which was a wedge locker, updated, oh, not updated, but um, with sights graduated for this new smokeless round. Um, so that the M90 infantry rifle is an M1888 system with different sight settings. 
the M1888 was also updated to that M90 pattern by just um, bolting on two plates onto the sites that basically just showed new graduations. So what Sam is saying is that there are what is referred to in the um, collector sphere as the 8890, which is an original 1888 rifle that was updated to the new 1890 pattern by changing the rear sights with a tacked on plates over the rear sight. But there's also 1890 rifles, which already had the new sights on them as well, uh, as well as some other minor updates, right? Yeah, exactly. So, um, so the M90 infantry rifle and the M90 carbine are different entirely. The carbine uses a new action, uh, which was actually the old action. So the M90 action is Mannliches pattern from 1884, updated by basically just moving the locking lugs from the rear to the front. Um, Something that was common in the time period was to yeah. have the locking lugs in the rear because to prevent fouling uh, from the black powder, yeah. which wasn't necessary with new smokeless. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, which is also a big reason why small ball was suddenly possible, uh, because people knew that a small a small bullet flying at higher speeds uh, would have a similar energy projection compared to a larger bullet moving as at slower speed. However, if you ever shot black powder, it is a mess. So the ball would get fouled up quite quickly, throwing off your shots and uh, making cleaning quite an involved process. I think uh, I think Cody can attest to that. <laughs> Yeah, black powder's a mess. <clears throat> yeah. Um, oh, I've got the so, so I've got the pictures up uh, on the screen right now of the M90, um, and let's just go ahead and talk about this real quick. The M90 carbine, um, as you can see, I'm looking at the action right now. So, um, oh, this is kind of hard to see here, uh, but we no longer have a a wedge locking system. It's essentially the M95 system, right, with some minor differences. Yeah, they're basically the same action. It was just minor things that got updated between the M90 and the M95, like you have a different, um, a differently shaped cocking piece, for example, so that you can thumb it back instead of having to pull with two fingers. Um, so it's, I want to say, quality of life stuff, not um, not huge changes to the action itself because they were very happy with it. It it worked well. It it provided enough locking strength. Um, so when the M95 was developed, well, hold on Manlisha second, could... Hold yeah. on. I want to talk about the way it looks. <laughs> so, sure. So the M90 looks like a fake gun. Does it? I, I know you, you greatly dislike uh, like the exposed barrel on the front, right? I do. It, it looks like something that's... It doesn't look correct. It looks yeah. it looks like it's been chopped down, which essentially it, it is. like, And that's yeah. kind of like what it is. But it, it does not look... It has no uh, provision for a bayonet lug. There's no snacking rods or anything. This is meant for the cavalry, so that makes sense. But it just... Uh, to me, it, it has always looked weird. It does look a bit weird. Yeah, it, it looks quirky. Looking. I like it. Um, 
but yeah, as you mentioned, and that's something many people don't don't realize, cavalry carbines back then uh, for quite a few nations didn't have bayonet locks because cavalry didn't get issued bayonets. They had a saber. Like, at this moment, I'm holding the Austro-Hungarian cavalry saber, model of 1869. If only he um, had a, a video camera. We if could if see. only I had a video camera, then you could see me playing around with a saber on cam. Um, anyway, so the idea was that when it came to battle, the saber was your melee weapon. Um, no one expected you to take your short little carbine and stab people with it. That was an afterthought that came around during the war, actually, for Austria-Hungary anyway. Okay, so it's 1890. We have, uh, and by the way, I will mention here that um, the 1886 rifles, uh, for the most part, Austria, did Austria-Hungary, like, basically just sell those off for the most part? Um, most were converted. So uh, the pattern is called DM-1886-90, similar to the 1888-90. Um, so you can, you can spot those uh, similar to, uh, to spotting an M-1888-90, so a smaller bore. However, if I recall correctly, the magazine wasn't shortened. So that's one of the differences where you can spot if it's an original 1886 rifle uh, compared to the 1888. Uh, however, there were actually uh, there was an export market for those. So one of the big uh, buyers would be Chile in South America, and they quite liked them from what I could tell. And you can spot those export rifles by them having a the Roman numeral two with a Q, which is basically which stands for second standard. So a first standard was reserved for for the Austro-Hungarian army, while second standard was reserved for uh, for export contracts. And that's also the only difference between them. So you have this little stamp that tells you this is a, a export rifle. I'm, I'm not sure if it's clear at this point, but I believe Bulgaria also bought some of those. Um, yes, I believe you are correct. It, yeah. Um, so the Bulgarians were very, uh, very into the Mannliche straight pull rifles, uh, which probably has to do with Vienna being quite generous when it comes to loans to buy Austrian arms specifically. So you'll see a lot of Balkan nations opt for Austrian guns, uh, because Austria obviously wanted to, to keep its influence in the region. So the majority of the 1886s would get converted into the updated pattern. Um, however, I will mention to the collectors out there that uh, in the United States in particular, I don't know about over in Austria, but uh, the Chilean 1886s were never updated. They kept the original 11mm cartridge. Um, the majority of the ones that you'll find in the United States are the Chilean export uh, version. Um, it seems to be that those are the most left in the original caliber almost all the ones that you'll find outside of that are converted is that correct sam yes um funnily enough the both the 1886 and uh the 1888 uh patterns and the 1890 updates are rather rare here because 
after the war, the first things that went were the old rifles, the outdated stuff. Uh, so M95s are pretty available here. Um, and most of them are in good condition too. But finding uh, the old wedge lockers is actually quite a challenge. Makes sense. It would be one of the I don't think they're too common here either. Um, I know that the, uh, yeah, the 86s from Chile are going to be the most common thing you find here, but they're, they're still not easy to find. Um, you can look it up and you're not going to find a lot of 1886s for sale in the United States easily. Um, cause I would love to have one of those because going back to what you said earlier, Aaron, they are probably one of the best, um, large bore black powder repeater rifles. So it's, it, it is weird to get that specific, but that's, <laughs> that is a very niche, like time period where it was like, this is a thing. And, um, and then it was just a very short time period relatively in terms of, of firearms history. But yeah, it's, it's really, I mean, if, if, if it was 1886 and you got your pick of all the black powder repeater rifles, I think it'd be hard not to say that the, uh, the Molisher 1886 wouldn't be the best pick. I'd, I'd honestly so, probably take one over a LaBelle, too, just to be safe. Because, I mean, the cartridge just out. Uh, the, yeah, yeah. Great. Uh, but oh, but oh, yeah, the 1886s are hard to find. I mean, I, I haven't seen a single one for sale lately I got in the one, U.S. I got one that was in, incorrectly marked as an M8, M88 uh, for $300. Um, so uh, it, it arrived to me, and it it reeked of cigarettes. But, oh, uh, nice. Uh, and it and it has um, so it's from Chile, and it has a, a brass heart that was like cut out with like uh, pliers, I'm assuming, and it's been stamped into the wood as well as some brass uh, dots just around randomly around the thing, uh, which are some initials. So um, I've seen a couple other ones that are similar to that, but it seems like the Chileans didn't really use them for they just used them for training. More, more than anything and, and for their guard units uh, because they re they very quickly even though they did like them as as um, Sam said I believe it was more of a case of they were really cheap and they were available uh, because the Chileans did eventually end up adopting and uh, using the 1895 Mauser um, so yeah. um, the like most of South America well, really? well, South America, you've got to look at what caliber they're using, and you can see who's allies and who's uh, uh, enemies. So if yeah, it's, if that's it's, true. If it's 7mm Mauser, you can see who were allies, and if it's 7.65, you can see who were enemies. Yeah. So, so South America is a mess. So Venezuela, 7mm. Brazil, 7mm. Argentina, 7.65. Peru, 7.65. So you'll start to see patterns like that if you go through and you'll see who did not like each other and who, who were allies because you would you definitely wanted a caliber that was similar or the same as your ally, but not as your enemy. So, uh, But I will say, I wanted to bring this up. Uh, we're not talking a small production run here. This is their main infantry rifle. This is their big thing. So the 1886 is roughly 100,000 or so before they decide to switch over to the, before we start to go into the new pattern. Uh, and then according to this, um, over a million were made by OW, uh, what is this? How do you, OEWG? Well, 
The actual pronunciation is much easier. It would be ÖWG. How do you say the full name? Österreichische Waffenfabriksgesellschaft. Which eventually so, um, will become the yeah. Steyr. Exactly. Now, at the same time period, or roughly around the same time period, you also have... Now, this the Steyr is their um, uh, federal or, like, military uh, arms creation, right? Exactly, yeah. So, at the same time, you're starting to start... You see the uh, creation and the building of the new facility over in uh, Budapest, right? Exactly, because the Hungarians uh, demanded that they have their own domestic uh, rifle production because, as we've touched upon in the beginning, um, you know, just in case they wanted to have their own arms industry um, because everyone knew that the empire wasn't that stable and it basically could break apart at any moment. Um, I mean, it wasn't that bad, but the Hungarians still demanded uh, to have their own domestic rifle production, which was the start of FEG Budapest. Now, can you pronounce that? The full name? Uh, I, I could, I, I but I'm not going. <laughs> I, I'm not going to because I don't want to insult any Hungarian on this planet, and I feel like they would be insulted. Right. So, a very small amount of the 88 rifles were made in uh, FEG, and uh, most of them were obviously made at OEWG. Um, now, um, an, just a side tangent here, which is kind of funny. Um, my other interest, uh, besides the M95, I have a slight interest in Siamese uh, rifles. And um, when Siam was reaching out to the European countries to get uh, rifles, because they had essentially just muskets at the time, um, the French and the British were basically stalling everybody from getting them arms. But they were able to secure um, some M88 rifles, and that's what introduced them to the 8x50R cartridge. Which um, they... I think you mean 8x52 at that point. It well, was still uh, no, it was it was the 8x50R cartridge. It was the M8890 is what they ended up getting. Okay. So they ended up getting the M8890, and they were introduced to the 8x50R cartridge, which is why the original Siamese Mausers are in an, an odd, what you would think would be a very odd caliber for them to choose, but it was because they were used to the the Mondlicher 8890s that they were like, oh yeah, well, let's just do this. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense, to be honest, but it's it's very weird, and I love Siamese rifle. I think they're, as you mentioned, it's a very interesting history with both the French and the British wanting them as basically this unarmed buffer state between uh, their colonial possessions in yeah. in East Asia. So that, them trying to build an army while basically the, the two largest colonial powers on Earth are trying to keep them, them unarmed is it's kind of funny to me, to be honest. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it sucks because it's obviously the imperialism yeah. of, of Europe versus uh, a very small independent state and Siam being the only country in Asia that survived in terms of not ever being conquered. Um, that is true, yeah. It, it's uh, one of the very, very few nations that never experienced European imperialism. Uh, besides uh, mainland, I should say. Japan is obviously a, yeah. a different situation. Um, yeah. Uh, so 
it's a very interesting story and a very interesting history of arms because you have a situation where uh the austro-hungarian empire influences siam you know and it's like what yeah why like it's so far removed but it's i think um one needs to to realize that at, at that point Steyr was the largest arms producer on earth like um when you when you look at austria today it's a tiny country i can attest to that i don't it doesn't take me long to get well horizontally it it does because it's kind of a long country but like vertically it's a it's a 4 hour drive from north to south and you're through the entire country um but Back then, it uh, it obviously was the second largest empire in Europe, and the I think the third most populous. So there was a lot of industrial potential, and Steyr managed to become very successful on the export market. Ironically, with a German design, so um, the details aren't clear as as far as I'm aware. But there was a whole lawsuit regarding the. Uh, the clip system that the Germans used in the Gewehr 88, uh, which led to Steyr getting exclusive export rights of the pattern. And they used that to modify and improve the action, which eventually led to their own line of export rifles that saw use in, in countries like Portugal and the Netherlands. Yeah, so when everybody talks about Mauser arming a, a good portion of the countries, it, it seems like Steyr was right there as well in terms of, um, like, Mauser got into South America, but Steyr got into, like, the smaller countries of Europe, more of the, uh, yeah. the, the secondary in terms of, you have the major powers, then you have the secondary powers. Um, they basically armed a lot of those groups. Um, but they did get into, like, they, they were producing arms for Mexico, um, they did do stuff for South America as well when Mauser wasn't able to keep up with the demand. So you see Steyr... They even produced for Germany. Yeah, and you see Steyr producing for Germany as well. Uh, so it's a very interesting thing because you would think like it's a, it's a federal or a government armory, but it is basically being run like an export business. Basically, yeah, it was incredibly successful, and I think uh, the fact that it still exists today attests to that. And FEG now makes refrigerators. Exactly, so who's cooler? Who won in the I mean, end? FEG is cooler, technically, because they make cooling systems. So uh, I'm not, I'm not going <laughs> to answer to that. <laughs> All right, so, it's a good one, I have to admit that. So we get, to, we get past the 1890, we have, we have essentially a very similar design to what uh, Monlicker had originally proposed and and so what propels us what why do they drive to the eight why do they move away from the wedge is it because they want to move away from the reg locker and they want a full-length rifle that's a different uh like the the standard uh, bolt similar to the m90 uh yeah so the the idea was that in um that they're going to adopt the stronger action of the M90 for basically all their needs. So it was actually decided in in 1895, uh, which is very interesting because it was a very quick process by comparison. So other other rifle designs took years to be uh, 
like conjured up, presented, trialed, and then adopted. Um, but no, the uh, the Ministry of War actually decided that in 1895 they're going to adopt a new infantry rifle um, because both the Imperial Landwehr and the the Honved also wanted to increase their stockpiles. So they, they were faced with the decision of either increasing production on the existing M90 rifle pattern or adopting a, a new rifle. And they they knew that they had the, um, the stronger and overall better M90 carbine action. So ultimately they decided on that. Um, and what's what was very important to them was that all the improvements of the M90 carbine action were to be included. And funnily enough, they specifically mentioned that the weight was to be reduced. Uh, so for all those that, that have an um, 1888-90 or one of those patterns, they know these are incredibly heavy rifles. Yes. So like um, almost 10 pounds each. Yeah, I, I Which mentioned is, when I got yeah. my 86, I mentioned when I got my 86 that it, it you could definitely tell it was from a time period when you had the idea that your wep- your rifle could be a melee weapon. Yeah, and like I wouldn't want to get hit with that, no, to be like honest. A, a club or stabbed with it, it is, it is bulky. Exactly, so that, that was something very important to them because ultimately when you're infantry you're carrying this thing around and you're marching for hundreds of miles on occasion. Um, obviously you don't want that. Um, so they specifically mention it in their requirements which was pretty funny to me um, but also reasonable. So um, when when they demanded that within a few months um in May of 1895, actually, they already received prototypes from Steyr, uh, because as I mentioned previously, it, it was a very, very, um, it was the M90 action, just slightly different. Uh, so they could basically just take it, throw it into um, into a new infantry rifle, and um, try to reduce the weight, which was achieved through superior or updated metallurgical processes. So it allowed for thinner steel with the same strength compared to thicker steel previously. Um, So they managed to reduce the weight to around about 8 pounds, which is pretty great. It's it's one of the lightest infantry rifles of the Great War. I think only the Kokano is actually lighter pound for pound. The long rifle, Um, obviously. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, say, speaking infantry rifles. I will say that it is it is a lot lighter than it looks. Like the long yeah. rifles look like you expect them to be hefty, but it's very well balanced and it's very um it just it doesn't seem it doesn't feel heavy. Yeah, it's true. It's like carrying them around side by side to different rifles like using um holding a German Gewehr 98 and then picking up an M95 right after, it's a noticeable difference. So um, I'd say task task successfully done. Um, yeah, the, the, other, the other changes were basically the, the sight setup, uh, 
So they went for a ladder site instead of the quadrant site of the M90 carbine, uh, which was more plush to uh, to the stock. And what what often gets overlooked, this is the very first uh, Mandicher rifle that actually has an upper handguard. So with smoke, um, not smokeless, with black powder, there was no need for a handguard because the the barrel would never heat up so quickly with uh, black powder single-shot rifles. Um, the barrel would never heat up so quickly, but with the increased friction of and power of smokeless powder and the increase in firing rate, the barrel would heat up quite a lot quicker. And when push comes to shove and you have to stab someone with your bayonet, you're going to have to grip the rifle at the barrel section. Um, with an exposed barrel, that's a pretty bad idea. Um, <laughs> I'm sure many people have, have done that before an accident. Uh, you know those things get hot. My US Krag um, has a, um, a handguard, a small handguard on it, uh, but it has metal rivets um, that, that touch the barrel. So Oh, that sounds lovely. So, yeah, I... Uh, I have a video of me uh, the first time I'm shooting it, and I'm like, this is so much fun to shoot. And I grab the handguard, and I go, ah! And I'm like, oh, <laughs> those are hot. So it's like, oh, I didn't, we didn't think that through. Yeah, it's it's funny, because you really immediately see the appearance of handguards almost everywhere as soon as Smokeless is introduced. Like, I'm, I'm having my Ottoman 1890 here, and it has this goofy little handguard. Just so that you have some form of of surface area that you can actually hold to stab oh. someone. Um, so it was very important to people because bayonet fighting was essential to every army's drill. So the expectation before the war was that at some point you're going to get into melee combat, be it with cavalry or other infantry, and you're going to have to stab someone with a knife attached to your rifle at the front. Um, obviously, it didn't turn out to be as important as expected. Still important, but not as important as expected. Uh, but regardless, it, it led to a full handguard on the M95. Um, and another big change was the moving of the bayonet lock to the bottom of the rifle, um, which was basically to have a more symmetrical... Uh, so the, the gases at the muzzle are very important uh, when it comes to the bullet trajectory. And when you have the bayonet on the side, it kind of deflects it ever so slightly, apparently. I'm not a physicist. Um, and moving it to the bottom allows for a much more symmetrical release of those gases, uh, which might also be a reason why, um, curiously, the M95 bayonets have have their edge on the not on the bottom but on the on the upper side of the blade. So they're they're single-edged bayonets, uh, knife-style bayonet, and the the actual blade is upwards so it, it looks like i'm showing a picture of them actually right now yeah yeah it, it looks like the the blade is is on in the wrong direction but it's correct this way uh which might have something to do with them wanting the thin blade right at the muzzle 
but I don't know. Uh, it might be it's just a thought I've had, but I've I have no evidence. Don't quote me. And so we, they also have the one with the Quillian, and that was considered the the officer bayonet, right? Yeah. So there's a bunch of different uh, versions of the bayonet. Um, also one with a frontside post on it called Hilfskorn, uh, which is basically aiding aiding post. Um, which was specifically designed for the Stutzen pattern. Again, uh, the shortened pattern. Let's talk about the the different patterns. So this gets confusing. Uh, in the oh, oh yeah, now now it's going to get fun. So we have the standard infantry rifle, which is the 1895, uh, and then and then what do we have? So I'm assuming, I, obviously I know this one. I'm going to play the devil's or play the the ignorant person here. So uh, we have the M90 cavalry carbine. So I assume there's an M95 cavalry carbine. Yes. Um, basically, initially you have three patterns. You have the infantry rifle, you have the Stutzen, and you have the cavalry carbine. Um, differences being, two of those are short. One is long. The infantry rifle is long, and we know it, so we're going to disregard it for now. The Stutzen is a shortened infantry rifle. It has all the same features of the infantry rifle, with one minor exception being that the front sight is not on a front sight band, but directly on the barrel. Other than that and the length, it is literally the same as the infantry rifle. Um, well, actually, no. Pardon me. Uh, it also has a 45-degree turnable um, rear sling swivel which is also how you can actually detect a, a true Stutzen swivel, at least. Um, well, the swivels are a mess. And I will say the swivels are a mess. And you also have a... a is it is it pre-war or early war update where they start putting a reinforcement bolt in the Stutzens? I don't... I'm not sure, to be honest. I am not sure. Because there are there um, are ones that show up without the, the bolt and then the rifles don't have it at all. Yeah. It is it's a mess. I don't think there's one clear guide on how to identify based on the swivels at all. No. Like there are general patterns, but there are so many sub variations, mostly thanks to um post war or pre-World War II reworks by a certain nation that I'm going to mention now, it's, Bulgaria, why? Yeah. yeah. Um, who basically said, fuck it, anything goes, and threw the rifles together however they please to a somewhat uniform pattern, um, yeah, which I, led to this mess now. I've told everybody that I've ever run across, they're like, oh, this is this pattern, and I go... Now, there's a Bulgarian mark on that. Who the fuck knows what it is? Yeah. Uh, it could have been anything. We will never know. Yeah. Um, so the key difference... Uh, so we talked about the key difference with the, the Stutzen. What about the cavalry carbine? So the cavalry carbine, uh, at this point, they're still being issued sabers. So the cavalry carbine doesn't have a bayonet lock. It also doesn't have a stacking rod. Um, because the expectation was never... Uh, the cavalry is going to to unmount um, from the horses and just have the little rifle TPs that everyone loves so much. Mm -hmm. 
And they're not going to bayonet fight either. They're going to have to saber and cut people up. So they didn't need a bayonet lock. And uh, scribble-wise, they were sideslung um, in order to just make it easier with um, with the cavalry gear to just carry the rifle on your back. And yeah, that, that's... I so the a... cavalry carbine differs more compared to the Stützen. Mm-hmm. And true and original Austro-Hungarian cavalry carbines are incredibly rare because... I believe even pref- before the war, they were updated to a pattern with a bayonet lug and stacking rod. So if you find one or if you have one, I hate you and I wish ill upon you and your bloodline. So actually, I have a, a very good picture here, which is from, I believe, an Austrian uh, museum. That's uh, on Wikipedia, but it shows um, it shows an 8890, an M90 long rifle, an M90 uh, sniper, which we can talk about. An M an M ninety carbine, uh, an M ninety uh, N ninety five cavalry carbine, and an M ninety five Stutzen, and you can clearly see yes. the difference. They have a lo- a lovely difference showing. You can see the differences, but yeah, an M ninety five cavalry carbine. The only way you can tell if it was an updated cavalry carbine. Do you know how, Sam? Uh it's the front barrel band that's uh, attached slightly differently, right? It's the screw comes in the other way. Yeah, exactly. It, so, it was something with the screw. It's something screwy with the screw. So the screw comes in the opposite side, and the screw head is on the opposite side of the barrel band. I don't know why. Ask the Austro-Hungarians. Uh, but uh, I believe it is the same screw. I don't. I think it's just screwed in differently. Um, yeah, but that's how you can tell. At least I never heard it was a different one. That's how you can tell if it's if it's an original cavalry carbine. I have seen in the United States ones with the updated the updates done to the front band where they have like welded on a bayonet lug or they welded on a stacking rod. Yeah, um, where where it still is the original band. So uh, so they are out there, but as Sam said, they are very rare. This update was done at some point pre-war, according to numerous people I've talked to, not just Sam. Um, but it wasn't done with any urgency, it seems, or, or anything like that, because there are examples that do show up. Um, and it doesn't seem... Yeah, it was probably something that, that happened over time, like when when one of the rifles went in for repair or replacement parts, they just did it uh, ad hoc whenever they had, had the chance. Yeah, and it also seems like um, they also wasn't a discernible pattern like we talked about. I've seen examples with just a bayonet lug, and I've seen examples with the sacking rod and bayonet lug. Yeah, I mean, if we've been talking about it, literally yesterday, the, the barrel bands are their own mess itself. Like, my new Bulgarian contract rifle does not have a stacking rod. It is a bayonet lug. It does not have a stacking rod. And it does not have a provision for a stacking rod. Yeah, it's not. It's, been, it's, it's literally not been, just a barrel band. It's not been with a lug. Off. It's not been like, like the stacking rod has not been taken out. It's just not there. And and uh, Sam and I, I reached out to our our good friend Nick from Gunboards, who is a Bulgarian, and I showed him the pictures. And I said, Sam is in Austria. He's seen at least three of these. And he goes, I've never seen that before in my life. So he had no idea, has no idea why it would be on a Bulgarian contract rifle, has zero clue. So this is another situation where 
who knows maybe it was just a small thing they had where they just had some that had no uh or maybe they requested them with some without bayonet or uh, stacking rods who the fuck knows maybe maybe bulgaria uh built some parts later on and then put them on there who knows yeah it's it's very strange and as we said there there's just no no general pattern that you can adhere to when it comes to these modifications it's do you want to say the 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 german names for these by the way those are fun uh yeah i mean so let me just get the list (laughs) Uh uh-huh because everyone you gotta say everyone's gonna love that yeah it's they are ridiculous so where is it there we go so um you have the m95 repetierstutzen then you have the M95 Repetier Karabiner. Then you have the M95 Repetier Karabiner Stutzen, the M95 Stutzen Karabiner, the M95 Repetier Karabiner mit Stutzenring. And those are just the main patterns that I recall just now. So yeah. if you ever go to a gun show and ask someone for either of those, good luck because. It's just whatever. They all sound the same. Like uh, I speak this language natively, and at first glance, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you which one is what. Go ahead, Cody. You're going to say something. No, I was going to say in the U.S. You mention any of those names to someone, they're just going to go, huh? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's a carbine. So <laughs> it's all the same. So it's it's the same here. Like when when I. When I go gun shopping, uh, most of them are just called uh, carabiner because the word carabiner is it's synonymous for both old rifles here, kind of, uh, because the the German K98K during World War II became so prevalent that it basically um, its name became synonymous for any old wooden stock military rifle, more or less. Um, but also for shortened patterns. So uh, most people don't refer to a Stutzen as a Stutzen. They refer to it as a Karabiner. With the M95s, it's it's more so that the people tend to use the word Stutzen, but for any other shortened pattern, it's a Karabiner. So, so uh, I, I, got, I got Nick cornered one day, and I was asking him, why are all these different versions existing essentially now i can understand a different version between the cavalry and, and the stutzen uh and and by the way i should mention here the stutzen is why does it exist at all so it was issued to specialty troops so stuff that was not on the front yeah. lines so we're talking engineers like, yeah, trained troops artillery uh people like that people that weren't expected to to really be on the front line and and hold the front line, but in case of an attack, should be able to defend themselves. So what Nick explained to me, and I don't know, this is all from Nick, so he's an authority on this, is that uh, besides the difference between the cavalry carbine and the Stutzen, is almost all the differences between all the variations that he just mentioned is the swing, is the swivel placement. So it's where the sling attaches. And essentially... The specialty units had a little bit more say in how they wanted their rifles, so they could request specific sling attachments depending on what they wanted. 
So that's why all these different variations exist. Then they're not much different, but it's just how the sling attaches to the rifle. Because maybe the train troops wanted it this way, but the artillery guys wanted it a different way, and and the the signal corps guys wanted it a different way. So it's just a slight variation in terms of how the sling attaches to the rifle. Yeah, from from what I understood is that the two big ones, the Repetier Karabiner Stutzen and the Repetier Stutzen Karabiner, um, are named after whether it was a Karabiner that was updated with Stutzen swivels and vice versa. Um, but all those little variations in between and beyond, I can very well imagine that this has something to do with uh, a certain branch demanding that this swivel be placed an inch further upwards because yeah. otherwise it snags on this pouch and yeah, so it can't be carried effectively. That is a difference if you if you are looking at your M95 uh, Stutzen uh, or cav or carbine. Um, it depends on which one you have, um, and I'm showing this in the picture here too. Is that the 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 rear barrel band where the sling is is in there are two different locations so essentially there's what's called a five inch handguard which has the hump where the rear barrel band is is placed is five inches from the rear sight and then there's what's called a seven inch handguard which is the right the barrel band is two inches further down the barrel that's the difference yeah so if anyone ever feels like they just want to be shipped off into a mental asylum, try to figure this out. And and, and, and so keep it keep that in mind of all the different variations, and then imagine Bulgaria gets all these rifles, takes all the parts off of them, throws them all in a bin, and this just says, fuck it, let's assemble rifles. Yeah. That's, Thank you for nothing, Bulgaria. Good, good luck figuring out any pattern. So yeah. I will mention this because... Uh, this was a huge rifle. I want to move into the, the sniper. So this was a huge deal in uh, Battlefield 1. And I'm going to mention that because this oh, is... Oh, Christ. What? Uh, shush. <laughs> because this was this was actually a, a top... Uh, what's called the meta. Uh, it, was, it was the most popular sniper rifle in the game. Because it, it actually loaded faster... Uh, it was very accurate and it, it performed very well. So it led a lot of people to in, into looking at M95s because they are, to be fair, a significantly cheaper investment for an M95 versus a Gewehr 98, for example. Yeah. Uh, but I'm going to let everybody down really hard here. The snipers are either impossible to find or fake. And even if they are real, they are impossible to verify, basically. Yeah, so Austria-Hungary never had a sniper program. All the snipers that have ever been made were just because an armorer wanted to make one or somebody requested something. Um, there was never an official sniper program. None of the parts of the of the sniper itself, the, the base mounts, the scope rings, uh, the scope itself, are matching to the rifle that it was never done. There are certain patterns, but there are multiple... How many different scopes are there? Like three? I think five, even. Five. Uh, and there's different ways that they were attached as well, correct? Yeah. <coughs> so, 
if you see somebody and we have seen one for sale i have seen one for sale at a gun show uh that was a sniper rifle um it is it is impossible to verify and um the funny thing is is that theoretically uh i could take a, an m95 long rifle that i do have cut out the section and buy the um the mounts and a scope and have a sniper rifle and it would be unverifiable basically yeah the the only approximation and it's really just a an approximation is similar wear on all the metal parts of the scope and the rifle itself and that's just a that's a hail mary yeah. However, what is cool about um, Austro-Hungarian snipers is that they had a shortened sniper pattern. or Well, yes. not pattern, but they had short sniper rifles. So um, the, the short patterns also got equipped with, with glasses. And I think that's pretty cool. They look, they look wicked cool. If you can find a photo, please, please show it. I'm trying to find it right now. Hold on. I wasn't prepared for that. But yes, there are uh, snipers of the. There we go. Ah, there's a there's a Stutzen pattern one. Uh, it's on uh, I'm on Laszlo's site. So uh, yeah, there's a there's a Stutzen um, sniper rifles, which is kind of a neat thing that really nobody really did. Um, then we also do have some rare attachments as well. Correct. We have the night sight. Yes, which I do have a pair of. Um. This is pretty cool because they're very easy to attach. So the the front sight. Um, hold on, let me let me see if I can if I can quickly find an image. Uh, well, I've got an image. I've got it on. Ah, okay. Laszlo's site has a wonderful uh, spread of pictures of a uh, rear sight. Ah, okay. Sight. Um, so yeah, the the front sight you have this. Um, what I presume is to be your uh, radium color uh, behind a piece of glass. Um, on basically a, a hinged attachment so you can just uh basically set it onto uh the normal front side just lock the hinge and you're good to go and the rear side is just a, a piece of brass that gets stuck under the under the rear side ladder and the side picture is basically you having this it's not a U notch, it's more of an O notch. So it's uh it's almost a circle uh where the front side circle fits in, which would uh theoretically glow. Um mine don't anymore, luckily. Or <laughs> not luckily, it, it would it wouldn't matter. Um but it's yeah. It's I think it's a pretty cool system and very easy to attach. Um and the the brass rear sights get found regularly. The front sight is it's what's very hard to to get. They tend to probably dis disappeared. Yeah, it, it's a very small it's a very small piece and quite fragile by comparison uh, because the rear sight is just a, a huge chunk of brass basically. Mm. So when those get dropped, they just disappear in the earth and someone digs them up. Uh, now. What about the grenade launcher site? It looks like uh, Laszlo has this here. Oh, I I don't know a lot about those actually. It's probably a... so if you now, if you have more information. No, Laszlo just has the pictures here. Um, it, it's I don't really know much about it. I know that the Austro-Hungarians didn't really do grenade launched uh, uh, rifle grenades. 
um, not like the um, the Germans and the uh, French. The French especially loved rifle grenades. Um, yeah, uh, uh, the label was predestined to yeet grenades across the battlefield. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so uh, oh, there's a uh, the fronts. Uh, the I just I just uh, scrolled down and they had one of the bayonets with the uh, front front post uh, attached to, to it. So uh, the auxiliary sight you were talking about. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I mean, very. I do wonder. A uh, pardon um, if I interject, but I do wonder if the like the aversiveness to rifle grenades stems from having rather thin metal in rifle. But I don't know, just a theory. But uh, the label is is a monster by comparison when it comes to metal strength and the the two piece stock too. But the stock on the M95 is very narrow. The entire rifle is very narrow. So I, I can imagine it splitting quite easily, especially the uh, the mid-war Elmwood stocks. Yeah, so... Um, like, splitting right along the grains. I can imagine that too, especially when you start seeing um, the fact that the British are wire-wrapping their, their SMLEs yeah. to do to survive. Um, now, um, yeah, the, the most common spots for issues with breaking them is, is either right behind the, the tang... Um, you'll see cracks there along the wrist, and you'll see uh, toes missing out of the uh, buttstock uh, most often than not in terms of when you'll see M95 stocks failing. Uh, I've noticed in mine, I don't know if you've noticed it in yours, Sam, but uh, especially ones that I've shot quite a bit, um, sometimes the screws of the action work themselves loose a little bit, and what that does is allow for more play in the uh, when it recoils. And uh, it's basically just shoving itself down on the um, the tang, and that's where it'll start to see breakage. I can't say I've noticed that, but I also use rather not weak but uh, reduced hand loads mostly for them. I only um, use the full powerful Nazi ammunition. Oh, that's well, joking. Oh, uh, that might. <laughs> I'm joking. I mean, could it could play a part, but um. Maybe I, maybe I also haven't noticed. To be honest, I, I need to do check. You, do you see uh, broken stocks in that location I'm referring to? Not really. No. Mm. Like most M95s that are available here are in rather good condition. I want to say, like uh, mm. the bores are generally not shut out. The metal is usually in in good condition, bluing as well. Oh, well, you know what? Though um, I would bet the difference is our favorite. B letter country. Uh, most of the ones in the United States are from Bulgaria. Yeah, I mean, you see Bulgarian reworks here as well, quite a lot. Um, also in Germany, which I could imagine having something to do with World War II. Um, just a hint. But yeah. Um, well, this is the pinnacle you, of the Austro-Hungarian yeah. designs, right? Yeah, it is. It's the crowning jewel of the Mannlicher straight pull rifles, and um, Austria would remain faithful to the design right up until um, its integration in the German Empire in 1933. So they they would use uh, an updated cartridge, the M30 cartridge. Uh, so in order to to get a little more punch out of it, 
and a little more speed. They a changed the projectile to a uh, spitzer bullet or spitzer bullet actually. Um, Spitzgeschoss. There we go. Um, so a a conical instead of a round nosed bullet. And they also increased the case length for additional powder, so it's it became the eight by fifty six millimeter rimmed, um, which combined with the light design of the rifle and the awful butt plate shape makes for quite the kicker. Yeah, which it also, <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, everyone chime in with Aaron's favorite quote. Yeah. Uh, and uh, is this also the time period when they start to to convert them to from the long rifles into the more of the of the Stutzen pattern? Yeah. So generally, um, after oh. World War One, ironically, so during World War One, you see a general trend towards shortened patterns. You see it in Germany with the uh, with their short rifle pattern, the Carabiner ninety eight. A or AZ depends on who you ask. I I'm not going to to chime into the the German collector guys territory on that uh, at that point. Um, the British had a universal short rifle before the war, even in the SMLE, and in Austria-Hungary herself, you can also see that while the infantry rifles were still the main production lines with I think about 2.7 million, something along the lines. Um, FPG Budapest was actually tasked from early 1915, if I recall correctly, onwards to only focus on the shortened patterns, which is why you see so many more uh, short Budapest rifles compared to the the long rifles, because the, the long rifles at this point have become rather rare. Uh, because they were either cut down post-war or fell victim to the attrition of the war itself. Um, so after after the armistice was signed and it came to peace talks, um, the losing powers were basically forbidden from having long rifles. Because for some reason, no one got the memo that there was a trend towards the short rifle anyway. Uh, so they basically told everyone, hey, you're not allowed to have long rifles anymore. You only get to have the short rifles. So while Austria apparently kept a lot of long rifles, because otherwise I can't explain why they're still rather common here, um, they did start to cut them down to the shortened patterns. Um, oftentimes you can tell by them still having the long infantry rifle sights. Um, yeah, to just... That was the start of this whole swivel and and pattern mess, basically. Yeah, yeah. essentially, I've I've told people before, um, so I'll show this on the screen here. Actually, um, we'll show uh, I'll show the uh, the differences. So uh, what I'm showing here right now is the S that the Austrians applied, uh, which signifies the conversion to eight by fifty six R. It's what I call the fancy S. And that's actually the Bulgarians, sorry. The Bulgarians do what I call a fancy S. Uh, it's, it has a serif font, essentially. Yeah. 
and then what I call a, a simple S is the Austrian version, which is just a very, very simple looking S mark. Um, Although there, there are debates on whether this is an actual identifier, because many people, and I'm somewhat skeptical of it as well, why, because Austria used the serif stamps previously on certain things, um, whether Bulgaria actually rechambered this many rifles on its own, but it's it's really not clear. There's no documentation regarding this. Um, or if there the was, only ones it was you destroyed. Can, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's what two world wars do to you, or one world war in this case. Well, and, and then, uh, the only ones that you can easily identify are the hung Hungarian reworks because they use an H. Yes. Um, but I will say that what's, what seems to be the collector thing is why, is why this simple S, quote-unquote, is the Austrian version, is that that simple S shows up on rifles that have a second or a, an, uh, an acceptance mark uh, showing yeah. typically in the 20s or 30s. Uh, so that's showing post-World War II, well, obviously showing in the 20s or 30s, uh, because it's showing uh, the update. But... Um, that's showing the post World yeah, War II conversion. Uh, Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, it's 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 a bit of a mess. Um yeah. and it's it's really not clear, so uh don't don't quote me on that. It it just seems strange for Bulgaria to rework this many rifles, but it's very well possible they were the the only other nation that really wanted to stick with this pattern because the Hungarians tried to move on from from the M95 in the form of the 35M and later the the 43M, Austria was uh, incorporated into Germany. So basically, they were told ship your supplies of this pattern to Bulgaria, and everything that they don't want or need, we just give and hand out to to second line rifle um groups. So um you'll see a lot of not frontline units um. German units use M95s, also SS units, uh, because they were basically given whatever just to have a rifle, basically. Yeah. Uh, and we'll, we'll say that there are a lot of uh, fake stamped uh, yeah. uh, M95s in the United States. Uh, it is unknown who has done that, um, but it is at some point in the 90s, it is assumed, uh, when the imports started to come back in from Bulgaria, uh, somebody decided it would make a lot of sense to stamp a bunch of Waffenomps um, on the rifles on the buttstocks, and you'll also see um, eagle stamps on uh, metal parts as well, typically on the barrel or the receiver. Uh, those are all fake. Uh, those stamps would only have been applied to a rifle in production in Nazi Germany. Uh, there were no rifles produced in Nazi Germany of the M95 pattern. Um, it, and if anything, it would have received a uh, rebuild stamp, um, but that's only occasionally and very hard to confirm. Uh, but if you see any kind of mark with the WAA code, um, it's not real. It's fake. Yeah, it's an acceptance stamp, as you mentioned. So rifle gets produced, someone looks at rifle, rifle gets stamped because it's accepted. Right. And also, uh, what's funny is, as well, um, because the codes were not as well known in the 90s, you'll see them with codes that make no sense. 
Yeah. Uh, so uh, most commonly, the the ones that were smart about it would use the code for Steyr, which makes the most sense. Uh, but you'll see ones for codes that have nothing to do with any arms production for rifles even. So you're like, what is this? Or they don't even exist. They, they, they literally just stamped a random number there. So um, it, it's literally, it was just a way to fake it for the market. So, uh, but we're yeah. getting out of the the realm of our discussion here. This is into the Austrian yeah. and the post-war situation. But um, uh, as, a, as we've all know, I'm a huge M95 fan. I love the pattern. I love the rifle itself. Um, the the all the different variations make your head want to explode because the, a lot of it is undocumented. Um, there was we didn't even talk about this, uh, Sam. Where I've I've had multiple discussions on Reddit or on the Discord where uh, they're like, "Why does this have a slightly different knob or something on the safety?" And I'm like, "Oh, because sometimes they use M90 parts." Oh, yeah. The, actually, we we didn't. Oh, we didn't mention it. There is something akin to an M1995 pattern, which is basically an M90 carbine uh, in an M95 stock. Yes, it's literally the same action. It you could basically say that it's almost yeah. It's the M95 is just an updated M90. To and the, be honest, and the only way you can tell the difference on those, and I have seen that pattern before in the US. Is that instead of it saying Steyr on it, it'll say the OWE OEWG stamp instead. Yeah, I mean, if if it has the original bolt, and I'm actually not sure if they interchange. I don't know if they I'll, interchange, I'll need, but I'll need to try. I have both here, so I'm going to try. We're know, going to conduct science. I know a lot of the parts are very similar, if not identical, because I know that the 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 uh, the knob, the cocking knob is uh the exact same in terms of attaching so i've seen them with the rounded cocking knob that the m90 uses and uh there were updates in between uh that and the final one that you see on most guns but there's actually different cocking knobs throughout the years uh those were never documented you just sometimes find them yep they do interchange yep okay did you hear what i said about the cocking knobs Yes, I did. So yeah, you you've seen the different versions of them. Yeah, those were never mock documented or d designed or whatever. It was just, oh yeah, this is a slight difference. It's better, so we'll just change it. Yeah, actually, um, the same thing happened with the, uh, with the bolt stop catch. Mm. Um, on on early pattern M95 bolt, they also look different. Um, it's it's very weird. Uh, how that changed or when because it's just not it doesn't seem to be documented at all no. someone must have just said yeah this this works better and they just incorporated in into the production lines yeah that's how i explained it to the guy that was asking me about why his uh cocking knob was different and i said oh they made an update at some point and they never did a back update so it was never considered a necessary thing to go back and refurbish all the rifles so essentially... Yeah, it was probably just production. Um, yeah, basically ease of production. Yeah. So you wouldn't go back and and alter already produced parts because why bother? They work. Uh, but for new production, you'd you'd save I don't know a little time, a little money, a little material. Mm -hmm. for, uh, Cody, what do you think of the M ninety five? 
there is a wrong answer. So <laughs> I think it's a pretty nice rifle, but it, it sure does kick. <clears throat> well, I, I would say the um the fact that the clips are unidirectional instead of omnidirectional is kind of unfortunate. Like the Carcano has that better. Um, I do wish they could be inserted in either direction. So that's an unfortunate that issue with the rimmed ammunition. Yeah, it doesn't work so well with rimmed, uh, which sucks. Actually, we do have uh, omnidirectional clips with rimmed ammo for both the Dutch and the Romanians, who both used 6.5 by 53 millimeter rimmed. Mm. Uh, so it's very interesting that Austria-Hungary Austria produced an omnidirectional clip for one of its expert um, export patterns, but never adopted it themselves. Instead, they added just uh, grasping grooves on top of the clip to, so you could easily determine what the top is. And I think, or for myself, maybe just familiarity, I've never, even when I didn't look, I never grab the clip and then try to insert it the wrong way initially, um, which I think is due to the, the slanted design. So due to the way gravity affects the clip, you immediately feel how it's supposed to be um, due to the, the cartridges not being in a line. But yeah, yeah it's, I, I always found it strange that there were omnidirectional clips. Uh, they never adopted it, and they they stuck with the design basically from its insertion in eighteen six uh, eighteen eighty six. So here's what I will say about the M ninety fives. The one thing you hear a lot about them is the the benefits of the straight pull action on your rate of fire. Um, I feel like it's kind of offset by the stoutness of the eight by fifty six cartridge. Um, because I have tried rapid firing a, you know, an eight by 56 M95 and the, your sights get thrown off so far, uh, shooting that cartridge out of such a light rifle. Cause they are, they're so light and just they're sleek. I, I think that's like the perfect word to describe them and trying to shoot those rapidly is, it just seems incredibly difficult because of how stout the recoil is it just throws your sights off so aggressively um it's interesting like if you swapped cartridges with like the italians for example and you had a very light shooting cartridge like 65 carcano in an m95 action it would be incredible I well think. i think that's where the reputation comes from as world war one where you did not have the 8x56r you had the 8x50r yeah. yeah. So you had a lot softer shooting cartridge in terms of that. So I think that its its reputation for it being a speed shooting rifle uh, came from World War One, and it just kind of carried over, and that reputation bled over. And then when it when they like you said they adopted the starter cartridge, that reputation got lost a little bit in terms of like the the usability of like you said it's it definitely does not. Um, I'm not going to be the first to say it's 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 a pleasant fun thing to shoot. Um, it's not, uh, so it's definitely not easy to do that. Um, it's much better out of a long rifle, 8x56R, uh, with the converted Bulgarian long rifles, it's much better. Um, 
But like with a Stutzen, no, it's not a pleasant experience. Yeah. And I don't expect it to be a repeatable experience either. Although, while we're on it, uh, we can actually um, address one of the big law pieces. So, many people know that the M95 is referred to as the Ruckzuggewehr, mm. um, which many people assume means back and forth rifle, um, or something akin to that. When, uh, because they assume that the Zuck part stems from the word Zurück, meaning back in German, when it actually has uh, the word stem of Zuckeln, which is a very erratic movement. So, yeah. It's not the the back and forth rifle. It's the um, back and then erratic movement forward rifle, <laughs> which doesn't sound as good, but uh, it still carries the name Rückzuggewehr. Although it... in in Austrian dialect, Zurück and Zuck would be very close together because it would be Zuck. So um, I think the confusion also stems from actual people native to here because they just. It's so close to each other, and the word zucking doesn't really get used anymore. So, yeah, I, I think it's it's semi-law because it makes sense, but it's technically not true, which is the best kind of not true. Yeah, so it's like one of those things like, oh, this makes more sense to it, for it to be this word, but it's not exactly what it was. Yeah. It's almost like I got translated, and somebody was like, no, it makes more sense for it to be this word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I don't think I've ever heard anyone use the word zuckern. Hmm. Now, does it still get and called that in Austria? Rockzuckgewehr. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty well known under that name. Hmm. I think the Italians with the they call it tapum, yes. and I I think that came from the sound like you'd you'd hear the shot and, or you'd you'd hear the shot fly by and then. Shortly afterwards, you'd hear the the boom from the actual rifle shot. I I believe yeah, I could be misremembering. Yeah, no, that's that's what it is. That's from the 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 Italian campaign in the in the mountains, right? Yeah, they got a song about yeah, that. That's true. So it's actually a pretty famous rifle, and I'm I'm glad it's getting the recognition it actually deserves because, like in previous years, it's been flying under the radar. In my opinion, uh, because it was overshadowed by, uh, by German designs mostly, uh, so it was kind of forgotten. But one shouldn't forget that Austria-Hungary in World War One mobilized, I think, eight million men, and fought on three different fronts. So this wasn't a one-country show. It produced a lot of material for the Central Powers. It supplied Bulgaria with rifles too, uh, because Bulgaria was the the only other uh, user of the M95. So the other Balkan nations after or during the Balkan Wars, um, during the Second Balkan War to be specific, uh, captured a lot of Bulgarian rifles and incorporated them into their own stockpiles. And they would also use them during the Great War. Uh, but Bulgaria was the only other nation aside from Austria-Hungary that actually adopted the M95 as its main service rifle. Interestingly, before Austria-Hungary did so itself. Yes. So Bulgaria, yeah, Bulgaria adopted it in 1896 when Austria-Hungary adopted the infantry rifle in 1898. 
Stützen in 1897 and the carbine, the cavalry carbine in 1899. So Bulgaria was the first official user of the M95. Very weird. Yeah, but, but, but apparently shows, they, they love the straight pulls. That shows the closeness of the Austro-Hungarian Empire with Bulgaria. Yeah. It's like, oh, before we've even adopted it ourselves, like, Bulgaria's like, no, we want that. Yeah, basically, uh, uh, I guess they were present at the trials, uh, saw that it's basically uh, the, the 8890 that they already had, but better in every way so they just decided yeah all right give me that when production hadn't even properly started yet so that reminds me um so remember we talked about siam getting those 8890s uh yeah do you know why they had a surplus of 8890s that they agreed to sell to siam Uh, i assume it was a bulgarian contract that they changed over (laughs) of course (laughs) they were like no we can't float this anymore and they sold them to siam (laughs) it's this story as old as time balkan nation buys rifle goes bankrupt has to sell rifle it's just just like the greeks with the manlicher schönauer rifle like literally being one of the poorest nations on the continent and then going for the most expensive rifle on the market that you can get it's it's fascinating but beautiful gorgeous looking. it is beautiful i love mine it it is one of the most gorgeous rifles and austria hungary actually um did trial in 1915 a manlicher schönauer rifle um to replace the M95. So, ironically, the M95 was on its way out um, by the time the war started. So, Austria-Hungary went to war with a rifle they intended to replace. Um, It makes sense. It was was at that point pushing 30 years old. 20 years. 20 years. Well, yeah, 20 years. Um, So, uh, the biggest... They had a few trials rifles. um, And the the candidate that was considered the favorite would have been the Repetiergewehr M1915, uh, which was a Mannlicher Schönauer rifle chambered in uh, the German 8mm Mauser cartridge. Um, I think it would have been amazing if, if it was in 7mm Mauser. Um, that would be my favorite rifle of all time. And um, the Vienna history... Um, Museum of Military History, which has an, an amazing collection, by the way. So if you ever visit Austria, go there. This is also where the picture of all the variant, uh, all the different variants of M95 that you pulled up earlier, because I know the image, it's there. Um, like that glass display that's in this museum. I love, I love being there. The World War One section is amazing. And they actually have an example of this trials rifle in an Elmwood stock. It looks great. And I think that would have been a pretty good candidate for replacement. So uh, for the first time, this would have been not a straight pull design, but a traditional turn bolt design. Uh, so the, the Mannlicher Schönauer action is derived from the Gewehr 88. So this is basically the last in the line of the 
Malaysia export patterns. Yeah, so, so I, yeah. I was looking at it here. Um, I, I'm seeing on uh, Laszlo's site here that they had uh, four rifles in this trial, which did not go for very long, obviously. Um, they did a, a what they called a, a Mauser uh, M1914, which was a Gewehr 98 Mauser in an M95 stock, and it was in 8x50R. Yeah. And then they had another Mauser M1914, which was just a copy of the Mauser M1912, which was for the Mexican market, and that was in 7mm Mauser. Yeah. And then they had a Monlicker 14.M, which was a straight pull M95, but in 7mm Mauser. And with a folding bayonet. Yes. And then what you just described is the Monlicker Schonauer hybrid rifle, which was in 8mm Mauser. Yeah. I think it would have been interesting to see a proper trials process between these, uh, because it really would have pitted the, especially the the Mazda design and the Mannlicher Schönauer design. It really would have pitted the the crown jewel of German arms design at that point versus the the crown jewel of Austrian arms design, even though it was German derived. But at that point, the action was pretty heavily modified. Um, and I actually, I'm interested because I believe they would have kept the um, the rotary magazine of the Mannlicher Schönauer rifle, which it is famous for, um, because it is a very smooth, uh, smooth feeding experience. So if you yes, if does. you know someone who has one, according to Laszlo's site, at least it yeah. says it uses it too. Yeah, looks like it. Uh, and what's neat too is that that uh, that uh, the Monlicker with the the M95 with in seven millimeter with the folding bayonet that was actually yeah. submitted by Hungarian uh, designers out of FEG. Oh, so that was a Hungarian That's, design. Oh, yeah. submitted for trials. Yeah, it does. It does have uh, the Budapest on the on the receiver. Yeah, that is true. Uh, and it was. It says, according to this from Laszlo, it says that it was uh, designed to take stripper clips instead of. It had an integral box magazine, still straight pull, yeah. but an integral box magazine, and it was um, uh, uh, the tangent sight uh, was in meters, because the Hungarian. Yeah, I'm, I'm currently meters. looking at the photos. Uh, like the the collection at the local museum has one in there. Yeah, they have one in their collection. Um, it looks like a with, weird SMLE yeah. uh, front stock, and then with a weird folding bayonet, and then like yeah, a standard. It kind of looks like a, a mix of a Carcano and an SMLE at the front, and then it becomes a Mauser before becoming a Mannlicher straight straight pull. Yeah, again, it's, it's very, very weird. weird. A very interesting design for sure. Oh, that is true. I mean, there were also um, ideas to just have the the normal short patterns with a folding bayonet. So there there was a lot of um, of fooling around with with the designs, but ultimately, due to the war and in the end its conclusion with the dissolution of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, none of this ever bore any fruit. Yeah, it, it didn't get. I as, mean, it didn't get as far as like the the pattern thirteen in the Great Britain, where they were essentially just right there in terms of starting their production. Yeah, this was like the very start of trials, if what I'm understanding. 
basically, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think they they had settled on on anything really concretely yet, which I you mean, can tell by same... by the fact that they have a bunch of different cartridges. I was gonna say there's three for different cartridges trial. here. Yeah. Yeah. So and they they I weren't love... sure. Do they want to have like an intermediate diameter bullet, or do they want to have by that what would now be considered a larger bore at eight millimeter? It's not really large bore, but by modern standards, or do they want to have a folding bayonet? Do they want to have a a normal ninety eight Mauser pattern uh, bayonet lug? So. No one knows anything goes. And the funny thing is, is also that there's literally just the the Mauser nineteen twelve, the M nineteen twelve that they're making for export. They're like, why don't yeah. we just use that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I never understood that either because like the production line was already there. Yeah. Just And they did end up using them, so there are ones that were sequestered. Uh for, that least, is true. Uh, for Mexico, Chile, uh Colombia and I think that's it. Uh yeah. So it's it's not clear how to identify those. Um, <laughs> yeah. Supposedly, uh, they use uh, different swivel loops on occasion, but no one knows really. Who knows? Like some sequestered rifles, you can tell because they uh, they just have a different magazine or sight setup, or they at least get um, the acceptance stamp, so the WN uh, with the year 1914 in this case. Um, but these never got them, so it's it's guesswork whether it was sequestered or not. Well, um, that's been very interesting, uh, but I think it's about time to wrap up. I know it's late for you or early morning for you, Sam. Early morning. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, I hope everybody is enjoying this series that we've been doing. Um I am going to probably look at doing Italy next. So we'll do uh, the, uh, uh, I assume the Vetterly is the first cartridge rifle, or is it, do they have any conversions over there? It's the first cartridge rifle. Before that, they had the Carcano needle fire with a paper uh, cartridge. Uh, needle fire, okay. Yeah, that yeah. happened in um, uh, Germany as well. Yeah, so... So yeah, he'd be veteraning through the Carcano. Uh, which is going to be an interesting um, talk again that we talked about the Germans um, being a, basically a, a brand new country, a unified country. Italy is very much in the same vein in, the, in that terms too, is that they weren't... Yeah, they were just 10 years early. They, yeah, there'll be a lot, of talk, lot to talk about there. Yeah, Italy was not... Italy as a unified country is not as old as, uh, as the people in the United States think it is. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Same with Germany, uh, so um, uh, that's kind of a, a neat, a neat aspect of the history. Uh, but thank you, Sam and Cody, for coming. Um, uh, is there anything you guys want to shout out or anything? Um, just that it was my pleasure being on. Thank you for inviting me, and I'm glad to report that I'm the first international guest on this podcast, and I'm going to get a green name in the Discord, which is. All the reason why I was not. even there. He's not. He's... You had to ruin that for me, right? You're not the first. You're, just... You're actually like the third. Wow. Uh, At least I still get a medal. So like uh, disregard know... what I said earlier. Would you like to know what the first one was? Was it Canadian? No, he was Swiss. Ow. 
God damn it. The betrayal. Yes. And then we also had somebody, a Kiwi. We had somebody from New Zealand. Okay, but, okay, but, like, we can't, we are going to disregard New Zealand because so many maps already leave it out for some reason. True. So or I'm they going... use the Australian flag for the New Zealand. Yeah, exactly. So are we even sure it's there? Like, Do we know that Finland exists? Exactly. Like, who can tell? I mean, I've been there, but I didn't see many Finnish people. All right. So, Well, uh, I'll tell everybody to... Um... Subscribe to Millsorp World. Um, hopefully, when Danny gets a little thing settled with his new house, he'll be able to put out videos a lot more quickly and easily. He's got he's got a, he's got a much bigger location to deal with, uh, a much a much nicer space that he's going to be able to do uh, uh, videos with. Um, so uh, this should be a uh, a nice direction for Millsorp World to get some more long term long content videos out. Uh, we do have a Discord. And a Patreon. Uh, joining the Patreon at, at the $1 rank will get you access to the Discord. You can join at any rank. Uh, uh, doing, joining the Patreon helps keep these uh, podcasts up on the website indefinitely, as well as uh, an access to a, a lot of information and a lot of great guys over in the Discord. So uh, you guys like join the Discord, it. right? <laughs> join yeah. it. Yes. Yes. All right. Quality people there. Well, once again, thank you guys for coming and uh, have a great night, everybody.